official K1 podcast, K1 Battlecast. Oh, the Slugfest! You'll get news, fight reviews, and fighter interviews. Oh, the Battlecast! And now, your hosts, Michael Shamero and Jonathan Shea. It's good night, Irene! Welcome to K1 Battlecast, the official podcast of the new K1 Reborn Worldwide. I'm Michael Chevello down in sunny Melbourne, Australia, and joining me up north from Tokyo, Japan, it's Jonathan Shear. G'day, Jonathan. Hey, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing well, my friend. It's still warm down here in Australia, and it's uh, just the tail end of the school holidays. Kids are heading back to school all over the country. Everyone has resumed work. It's a good time to be alive. I can't complain. That's good to hear. Well, um, your favorite weather, the snow, um, popped up the other day. There was a slight rain shower that turned into a flurry. So, uh, Oh, hold on, hold stay. on. Did it turn it into something I hate even more than snow? Sleet? Ooh, um, it, I think you could probably classify it as that. It, it was raining, and then it flurried, and then, yeah. I truly despise sleet. I despise it's having a dangerous to one on ice. It's horrible. Yeah. How can people yeah. navigate? How can they ambulate on ice? I remember when I was living over in the States and uh, on Super Bowl weekend 2011, I was in Dallas doing some uh, Super Bowl recordings for Access TV. And I think about three or four people saved me during that trip from broken ankles, broken shins, broken hips, and the rest of it catching me as I slipped and slided like a cat walking on walnut shells all over the place. It was Horrible. I remember commentating on direct TV live in the snow, and it was almost halfway up to my knees, a world sabering record. There was a, a guy doing a sabering world record live on direct TV. And by sabering, Jonathan, I mean he had a sword and he was chopping the corks off champagne bottles in record time. And direct TV wow. chose to do this outdoors in the snow with me commentating it live. It was fun to commentate. But uh, almost knee-high in snow, uh-uh, hated it. Terrible. So, you know, people don't understand the the troubles or the travails that uh, announcers and commentators have to go through. And this is, you know, that's danger pay. You should have been getting danger pay, Michael. I should have been getting danger pay. I, I need to recruit you as my new agent. I'll tell you what. Oh, I do not want snow. Once again, Jonathan, I'm I'm putting a call out there to Mother Nature. March 20th. We will be there. You and I, Jonathan, will be there at the Yoyogi National Gymnasium Stadium for the return of K1 Max. Details coming shortly. More news emerging about that one. But I'm putting out the call to Mother Nature and the elements. No snow, no sleep, please. A nice, crisp, sunny day. Don't mind if it's cold. Love the cold. Cold is good. Just no snow. March 20, Yoyogi Stadium in Tokyo, K1 Max. And folks, book your tickets today. If you haven't already, go online, visit your travel agent, book yourself a trip to Tokyo. It's a fabulous city. Jonathan, I love Tokyo. I love it. I can't get enough. Not only the sights, the sounds, the smells, but mate, the food. Years ago, I remember my wife and I were, were uh, visiting a restaurant uh, near the Tokyo Dome. It was one of those Forrest Gump restaurants out there near the Tokyo Dome. And uh, it was her, her first time in Tokyo. She came with me to when I commentated Dynamite in 2009. And I said, listen, if you need something, shout out Sumasen. But shout it out really yeah. loud. And she got into it, shouting it out really loud. And she was just <laughs> she was just um, stupefied, but 
joyously so in the way that the waiters and waitresses came scrambling over to to attend to your every need. It's uh, really, folks, if you're going to go to Tokyo on March 20 for K1 Max, visit some some restaurants. And I, I do believe, Jonathan, that Tokyo, I may be wrong, has the most Michelin star rated restaurants per square kilometer in the world, if not this also the most restaurants per square kilometer in the world. I don't know about the second one, but I do know the first, the Michelin starred restaurants. That is true. They have the most in the world. So they're up on their food game. Okay, and don't forget and what, the magic word, sumimasen. That opens that doors. Will, it opens doors. It does. It does. It's a magic sumimasen. word. Hey, one more question for you before we get stuck into this episode. What's I only that, trust you to take me here. There's one place I need to go to. I've never been to before. You must take me because I trust you, brother. I want to eat the poisonous puffer fish. Um, you haven't food. done it either. Yeah, all right. Let's do it. I've not done it either. No, no, that's why I, I no trust you. You've got to find somewhere. Because listen, guys, it, if you don't know about a puffer fish, of course, are poisonous, very poisonous. Eat them, you, you're, you're paralyzed, you can die. Um, in Japan, uh, I've watched a documentary on this. You've got to be a qualified, licensed chef to be able to slice the puffer fish a particular way to remove the, um, you know, the, the poison sacs from the fish and be able to serve the raw puffer fish thinly sliced to your guests. There are a lot of restaurants that do it, but only a certain few that have this particular license that these chefs spend years trying to get a hold of and are qualified to do so they don't poison you and kill you or paralyze you. So Jonathan, we've got to find one of these legit places because I don't want to be lopsided with half my face missing when I commentate K1 Max. I want to commentate it well. I don't want poison in my system. Let's find a place and let's go consume some depoisoned puffer fish. We'll do it. Done. We're on. To, we're on. We're on. Meanwhile, my friend, what an episode we have lined up because we are going to talk to former K1 European champion, Paul Slowinski. This guy has a lot of great stories about fighting the likes of Bada Hari and Peter Ertz and winning the K1 European Championship when he was trained by Ernesto Hoost. You do not want to miss out on the interview with Paul Sawinski. We have a great question coming up on our listener mailbag that you've sent us. And also, we're about to hop in the DeLorean and go back in time once more. In fact, Jonathan, why don't we do that right now? Fire up the flux capacitor and let's go to our K1 Rewind. This week on K1 Rewind, we go back to Sunday, December 13, 1998 at the Tokyo Dome. 63,800 fans in attendance to watch the sixth annual K1 World Grand Prix. And what a Grand Prix lineup it was. Arguably the toughest lineup yet. But you know what? Not arguably. It was the toughest lineup yet. Listen to this. You had Mike Bernardo who had beaten Maurice Smith in the final 16 to qualify. You had Francisco Filio, who knocked out Rick Rufus in the final 16. There was Peter Ertz, who had TKO Sinisa Andriasevich in the final 16. Masaki Satake was there again. He decisioned a young Glaube Feitoza to qualify. Ernesto Hust was there after beating Tosca Petridis in the final 16. Petridis' stablemate, Slamham Sam Greco, was in the Grand Prix after beating England's Matt Skelton in the final 16. Andy Hug was there. He beat England's Mark Russell in the qualifiers. And Ray Seffo rounded out the Grand Prix, having beaten Stefan Lecco to qualify. This was Seffo's first appearance in the K1 
World Grand Prix. So again, Bernardo, Filio, Ertz, Sataki, Hoost, Greco, Hug, Sefo. That is a savage eight-man lineup for the 98 Grand Prix. So Ernesto Hoost came in as the favorite. He was the reigning champion. He'd beaten Andy in the final in 1997. And Peter Ertz was also considered a favorite. Peter was already a two-time champion. And um, along with those two, I'd say Mike Bernardo was maybe the third favorite. Mike had won his last five fights, including four by knockout. His hands, I mean, he was a pro boxer from South Africa. His hands were enormous and they were powerful. And he was just wrecking fools with his boxing back in the day there in K1. Given that this was such an awesome lineup without any weak links, it makes Peter Ertz's victory all the more impressive. Add to that the fact that Ertz won this Grand Prix in a record time, a record that would stand for more than 10 years. I'm still amazed that Peter tore through a lineup of this caliber so quickly. And the argument can be made that Peter's 1998 win was the most epic, the most convincing, the most savage in K1 World Grand Prix history. I mean, Peter cut through three of the best heavyweights on the planet and again in record time. In the quarterfinals, Peter fought Masaki Satake. He set the pace with a stiff jab. Satake tried to use his body kicks. Ertz chased him around the ring and landed a knee that dropped Satake. Satake beat the count and Ertz pounced on him, dropping Satake with another knee to finish the fight. And the total fight time was only two minutes and 40 seconds. In the semifinal, Ertz faces Mike Bernardo, who had just rung Francisco Filio's bell with a vicious third-round knockout via overhand right in the quarterfinals. Now, you talk about arch rivals in fight sports. Ertz and Bernardo were arch enemies in the ring. This was the sixth fight between them, with both having two stoppage wins each and one win by disqualification for Bernardo. Famously, Peter Ertz wore the numbers 666 on his shorts. This was a deliberate attempt to get inside Bernardo's head. Everyone knew that Mike Bernardo was a devout Christian, a God-fearing man. Ertz wearing the 666 on his shorts was genius. Evil genius, to be sure, but genius all the same. He put on a savage performance against Bernardo. He wanted to humiliate Bernardo and put a beating on Mike, and he did just that. Peter dropped Bernardo twice in the first round for the win. The second knockdown was with an overhand right. Ertz outpunched the boxer and moved into the final. Total fight time of that semifinal, two minutes and 53 seconds. Overall fight time combined now, the quarters and the semis, only five minutes and 55 seconds, or 333 seconds. Curiously, half of 666. So, in the final, Peter Ertz meets another arch rival, Andy Hug, who had TKO'd Sefo in the quarters and decisioned Sam Greco in the semis. Ertz and Hug had fought three times before, with Andy holding a two and one record over the Lumberjack. Hug came into the final of an absolute war with Greco that I feel really drained Andy and really did make him ripe for the picking for Peter Ertz. 
At one minute and 10 seconds into the first round, Hita lands a left high kick that knocks Andy out cold. This is a highlight reel finish. Ertz pushes Andy off to create space and then swings his left leg high. He loops the shin around the back of Andy's neck. And if you watch the video, you can hear this thickening thud, clonk, thwack sound as Ertz's shin connects and Andy is out on his feet. He's astral traveling. Andy falls forward, then rolls onto his back, and Ertz becomes the first ever three-time K1 World Grand Prix champion. Total fight time of the final, 70 seconds. Overall fight time for Ertz's win in the 98 Grand Prix, 403 seconds or 6.71 minutes. This is a record that stands for 11 years until Semi Schult breaks it in 2009 with an overall Grand Prix winning time of 353 seconds or 5.88 minutes. Jonathan, for Peter Ertz to win that K1 Grand Prix, a Grand Prix full of utter superstars and legends in world record time, 403 seconds was, mate, something I will never, ever forget. It was incredible. A lot of these fights seem more like sprints than marathons, especially with all that adrenaline. Oh, it was a sprint. It was full bore from the starter's gun until he broke over the ribbon on the end line. This was Peter Ertz at, I, mean, I, I was going to say at his, at, at his most savage. In 94-95, when he won back-to-back, as we discussed uh, in the previous episode, he was a beast. He was almost inhuman. In 98, he was, he was next level. And if you watch his walkouts in that tournament, it's almost like he goes into another zone internally. He goes into a, a deep, dark, ferocious, hellacious place, and he just unloads on everyone. It is one of the most scariest, one of the most savage, for want of a a better word, beatdowns that any champion has given to three fighters in one night in in any tournament, not just in the K1 World Grand Prix, but in any tournament. I just wanted to get your reaction. um, Oh, yeah, go. That, you know, that Peter Ertz um, has a lot of endurance. So it, it almost... Like I've seen him take just so much abuse. From a fan standpoint, you're happy to see him win, but you, he could have just kept going. This is the thing with Peter. You're quite right. Is is Peter is a human sponge. He can absorb so much punishment and then give it back. He can get dropped and then return. And with Peter, I've you know for all the years I've I've watched Peter, and commentated Peter, uh, I've never ever seen him dial in a fight. He's never done it just for a paycheck. He's never just done it, gone through the routines, never gotten out of first gear. He's always gone through the gears. He's gone through the gears quickly. He has given his all. He has put his heart, his soul, his body, his mind all on the line in every single contest. And Jonathan, there are not a lot of fighters in any fight sport who can say they've done that. And when you consider that Peter's done it for so many fights, his entire career, a career that's you know, gone from, let's say, 1988 uh, through to, you know, beyond the end of K1 in 2010. It's extraordinary what he has put into the sport. Well, he certainly is an icon, and you can see him in the cities in Japan. I've bumped into him a couple of times. He's this guy yeah. you'll ever meet. He always has a super, laugh. Super nice. He comes up with a big... You know, the thing with Peter is uh, we'd always joke that you'd hear Peter coming from a mile away because he'd call out your voice. 
when he saw you from like a hundred meters away and that he'd be company with this big guffaw of a laugh. So we'd be in the hotel lobby in Tokyo or wherever we were around the world. And I knew Peter was coming because I'd hear, Hurry, monkey! <laughs> and then he comes up to you and gives you this huge hug. And uh, when you're in Peter Ertz's presence, it's a presence you don't ever want to leave. The man is uh, something special. And one day, Jonathan, we will have him as a guest here on K1 Battlecast. Well, we'll look forward to it. Hopefully that day will come soon. And that, folks, is a wrap of our K1 Rewind. Okay, it's time for our K1 Battlecast Superstar interview. And today we are venturing to Adelaide, South Australia, where resides one of the legendary names in Australasian kickboxing and a man who in uh, around 2008, 9 and 10 was rattling the K1 cage in a big way. The former K1 European Grand Prix champion, the former pupil of the great Ernesto Hoost, the former K1 Oceania champion, the one and only Sting, Paul Slawinski. Okay, we go to Adelaide, South Australia, and joined by a K1 legend of the Oceania region and the European region, it's Paul Slawinski. Paul, great to be with you, mate. Hello, how are you guys? Good to speak to you again, Michael. Mate, it's great to speak with you. We're going to have some memory lane visits in this uh, interview. Let's go back to... Uh, what was the best year in your K1 career, mate? It was 2007 when you become the K1 European champion. Now, at this time, Paul, you were training with Ernesto Hoost, right, in Amsterdam? Yes, that's right. What led to the move from training in South Australia to venturing all the way to Amsterdam and training with the great Ernesto Hoost? Um, well, I started... I lived in Thailand for about six years doing my Muay Thai with Stefan Fox and the WMC team. And I was going there from, I went there, I started fighting that 79 kilo. So um, as I was getting older, I was getting bigger and heavier and stronger, I guess. So I, I went all the way up to super heavyweight. And um, I have won the super heavyweight world title against um, Jorgen Krutz. And after that, I just um, had my eyes on K1. And um, I had my first entry to K1 Oceana in Melbourne on Tarek Solak's show. And um, <laughs> that went uh, not so good. Mitch, uh, uh, I think it was um, Mad, Mad Mitch Dingo put me away in the first round. And then I um, kind of uh, realized what kind of power those heavyweight guys have in K1. But um, I went back to the gym and kept on training. And then the following year, I re-entered K1 in uh, New Zealand. I fought uh, Jason Sardi, I fought Peter Graham, and I fought Ronnie Sefo. I um, I won that K1 tournament, and um, that was my Oceania title. And um, at that time, I think um, I, I got qualified to fight in Japan against Badahari. And um, that fight, you were commentating, Michael, with Ernesto. And um, the next uh, the next morning, I, I fought Badahari. I, I lost on points. The next morning, I had um, breakfast with you. And you were saying, oh, hey, Paul, um, Ernesto was um, speaking very highly of your, of your fight. And... Um, 
he also said that he's retiring and um, he's going to start Team Perfect. And um, I don't know, it was your advice. You said maybe you should go and check it out and see how they go. And um, I was, um, yeah, I was pumped to hear that. So um, straight up when I saw Ernesto in the foyer, I just went up to him and I said, hey, mom, I heard you spoke nicely of me and um, thank you for the compliments. Coming from you, it means a lot. And uh, we just started talking and um, Ernesto, yeah, did say, hey, man, I'm retiring. I'm going to start Team Perfect. I'm going to have a few heavyweights. If you want to jump on board, come in. A month later, I was on a plane to Holland. <laughs> and um, I started training with, uh, yeah, with all the boys down there. Let, so, let's yeah, go. That's you, it, it's an amazing story. And you did touch on the turning point there being the fight against Bada Hari. Now, of course, you went the distance with Bada. You lost by decision, which was rare in those days, Paul, because back then Bada Hari was laying waste to everyone. And you hang, you gave uh, some of your own licks on Bada Hari. And I suppose. That's what really impressed Ernesto Ringside, as he said, commentating with me on that night. Tell me about the experience of facing Bada Hari. This was in uh, 2006. And what was he like back then? What did Bada hit you with? What was he really good at? Yeah. With Bada, I, I am um, fight, fighting Muay Thai most of my fights. I kind of uh, learned that um, I can go strike for strike, strike for strike with my opponents. And then I could strike and then as they come to strike me, I could beat them to a strike and we call it second phase. I could I could get a lot of those fighters with my second phase. Where, where, where when I was fighting Bada, I just couldn't get that because um he he knew he was doing a, he was doing a second phase kind of drills with me. So every time I struck him and I um, was waiting for him to strike me so I can do my second phase counter. He was already onto it, and um, he was just faking, faking. I was missing my second face, and he was just jabbing me and then striking with his kicks. So um, it, it was it was a very frustrating fight for me, and um, he basically out, out, outclassed me, and um, that's when I kind of realized, wow, this guy in Holland, they they um they are level level above with the training and the drills, and um. The second phase, which means the second, the second count of uh, comebacks. Um, yeah, that's where I'm, I kind of realized, like I, you know, he was just a start, up a starting fighter, up a coming one, and um, I realized, like, wow, these guys, these guys know something more than we do down in Thailand, down in Oceania. So um, I was like, nah, I want to go there. I want to learn those things. I want to, I want to fight like these guys. You just heard part of Michael's conversation with Paul Slowinski, and you can hear more about his experience training in Holland with Team Perfect and going the distance against Semi Schultz. So we hope you'll tune into that full interview next week. All right, well, it's time for our listener mailbag, and we heard from one of you. Telvin Kipapa wrote into our official K1 email, which we encourage all of you to do as well, so please send your questions. He asks, was wondering if MMA didn't exist... Would kickboxing be the most popular sport in the world? Uh, Telvin. A, yeah. a, it's a heady one. It's a heady one. I'm going to give you a very blunt answer. The answer is no. Uh, would kickboxing be the biggest combat sport in the world if mixed martial arts didn't exist? Possibly, yes. The biggest sport in the world, no. And 
I don't think any combat sport will ever be the biggest sport in the world. I've stated this numerous times uh, when people have suggested that mixed martial arts should be in the Olympic Games, when people have suggested that Muay Thai should be in the Olympic Games. I have flat out said on social media and in interviews, much to the chagrin of many a fan, uh, no, I don't think they'll ever be in the Olympic Games, first of all. But the Olympic Games, of course, isn't qualifying uh, the most popular sport in the world. But uh, I, I just don't think that combat sports will ever get there to be the number one sport in the world, the mon- number one most popular. The reason being is that by the very nature of them being combat sports, by the very nature of these sports being sports where you need to hurt somebody to win, I do not think that correlates to becoming the most popular and most watched sport on the planet. That title will stay with football, aka soccer, for a long time, as it has been for a long time, and will continue to be because soccer is accessible to anybody. Okay. It's accessible to kids in Brazil in the favelas. It's accessible to kids in the ghettos in Africa who can roll up a bunch of rags into a ball and kick it around in the dust or on the streets. And they can then progress from there to the world stage, as we've seen so many soccer players do. Fighting is an inherent part of human nature. And of course, it is accessible to everyone, but it is not something that everyone wants to compete in nor wants to watch because, as I said, it does entail violence. It's not like it's violent, you know, gory violence, but still it's violence. And for that reason alone, uh, combat sport, any combat sport, boxing, mixed martial arts, kickboxing, will never be the most popular sport on the planet. Again, could K1 be the most popular if mixed martial arts, UFC, did not exist? Yes. Uh, Especially if K1 had continued after 2010, and now with K1 returning and being reborn and bringing back so many of those great production values that the old K1 was renowned for, because no one has done it better since. The, the great direction, the production, the live production, the TV production, the way the fighters are marketed, no one's done it since the old K1 did it. And now the new K1 is revisiting that and bringing that into the new era as well. Uh, if it continues to rise, uh, there's a, a good chance that K1 is going to be up there amongst the most popular combat sports on the planet and maybe eclipse other combat sports except I believe UFC because they have such a stronghold at the moment. But we are talking about if UFC didn't exist, then uh, Talvin, I'd say yes to that part of your question. But overall, as far as being the most popular sport on the planet, uh, the simple answer, my friend, is no. It's a a definite no. Well, you know, Michael, uh, Ishikancho in his interview mentioned how he wanted K1 to be more like soccer and to develop the popularity that soccer has. So we'll definitely see how things develop. I I did love that Kancho said that in his interview. And I believe that there are facets of combat sports that the bosses of combat sports should take from the pages of soccer, NFL, cricket, you know, other big sports around the world and see what they do, basketball, you know, NBA, what they're doing to market athletes, what they're doing to, to promote athletes in their coverage of the sports that we can adopt in fight sports. And a lot of a K1 does already. And a lot of a K1 was doing back in the day and was doing it better than anywhere anyone else, which is why back then K1 was one of the most watched sports on the planet and certainly for live attendance was one of these sports on the planet. I mean, again, we're talking Tokyo Dome with 
65,000 people. We were packing up big stadiums wherever we went around the world. Um, but again, because these are combat sports, they will never reach the status of popularity as non-combat sports like soccer, but they can reach the top of the level, the top rung in combat sports alone. I was thinking that one thing that K1 does really well for um, marketing or that they've done very well in the past is to create the story or to kind of let you know what the story of the fighters is. So you don't just watch them fight and say, wow, that was amazing. You you get a sense of their lifetime or their the troubles that they've encountered or the adversity that they've overcome. And it's um, that's also part of the the fight itself. I agree, Jonathan. I have to agree. And I think K1, Kancho Ishii, was really the architect of that style of promoting combat sports. You know, every fight you used to see back in the K1 heady days had a story behind it. You know, if not every fight on the card, at least the the main four or five fights, pretty much of the main show, all had a story behind it. Those storylines were crafted. They were meticulously you know, crafted over several months. The marketing genius was behind them. They were pitched like comic book characters. It was real life. You know, it was comic books come to to life. And that's what endeared so many fans behind those fighters back in the day. Other combat sports tried to do that, but I believe never really did it to the degree that K1 did it. And we are now starting to see that again from the newly reborn K1. I'm not sure, but I feel that's where the... Pro wrestling, like the the Japanese pro wrestling roots or the influence from from the organizers who who were in Japanese pro wrestling, who then went into Pride, who then also kind of created K1. They got the narrative crafting, I think, from the pro wrestling. Oh, no, roots, no so doubt they got that. that idea. No doubt. No doubt. So all this comes from pro wrestling. It all does. We we have pro wrestling pro wrestling to thank for it. We have Vince McMahon in particular to thank for it, both senior and junior, but more so junior. Because if you go back, let's say, Jonathan, to 1989, WrestleMania five, it was Hulk Hogan versus Macho Man Randy Savage in the main event. That storyline storyline was crafted (laughs) months before. When the when the the mega powers as they were, they were best mates, you know, Hogan helped Macho Man win the title at WrestleMania four against million dollar man Ted DiBiase. They became the tag team that were mega powers. And then, you know, uh, they, they broke up. That very famous, uh, beautifully filmed scene backstage where, where Macho Man accuses Hulk Hogan of having lust for Elizabeth, lust in his eyes to miss Elizabeth. I mean, this was brilliant storytelling. And it's storytelling like that where K1 drew their inspiration, where New Japan drew their inspiration as well, where where. Other fight sports drew their inspiration, all comes from pro wrestling. And even though we know that pro wrestling is scripted and you can choreograph this stuff, you can script it a year beforehand, you can't do that as much in fight sports because you don't know the outcome of particular fights. The the, the general storytelling ability all stems from professional wrestling. And for Master Ishii in 93 to have the, the balls, let's say, to do that, to take pro wrestling and put pro wrestling feel into combat sports, into kickboxing, it had never happened before. There had been big kickboxing fights, but no one had ever crafted stories and marketed athletes in this 
method before in this vein that Tancho Ishii did. So it, it all goes back to his genius of how K1 was founded and then being able to sustain that for you know a good 17 years. Thank you everyone for tuning into this week's episode of K1 Battlecast. And please remember that a new episode drops each and every Friday. We're bringing you closer to the heart and art of K1. Stay updated with the latest in K1 news, relive highlights from past episodes, and if a question or thought sparks your interest, we'd love to hear from you. So please check out our social media links and contact details in the show notes. Until next time, everyone, we hope you have a great week.